Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me on a slightly sunny day in a very empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Linda Smith, Veterinary Head of Careers and Education for the APHA. Linda, hello. Hello, how are you? Very well. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally we charge uh, full on into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how your organization has been affected by it. Well, my organization is involved in a lot of work on farms connected with control of notifiable diseases and protection of animal welfare. So we've actually had a number of activities that have continued despite the the roles. So we have a lot of key workers Mm -hmm. who are carrying that out. Aside from that, the majority of our workers are now working from home, but we do still have a proportion of staff who work, for example, in laboratories and can't really do that work at home. So they are continuing to work in the laboratories with appropriate safety precautions and social distancing. Now, of course, one of uh, the questions that has been asked uh, repeatedly during this time, is this transmittable to animals? I'm sure there isn't a um, uh, an easy answer to this question, but what does the uh, science show as of now? Well, historically, there have been a variety of coronaviruses that have affected a wide variety of our animals, including cats, dogs, and cattle. Mm-hmm. But those are not the same variety. Oh, and poultry as well, of course, poultry, mm-hmm. infectious bronchitis. Um, but the current strain, the COVID-19 strain, doesn't seem to affect very many animals. There have been a very small number of cases where it appears that humans have affected their pets for example, cats or dogs. Mm-hmm. And there's a pretty well-publicized case in New York City in the zoo where I think their collection of big cats, tigers and so on, have been affected. Um, so it, 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 compared to the human situation, it's a very minor mm. set of events um, that have shown that the virus can affect other animals. There have been uh, stories of people having uh, their uh, pets euthanized as a result of uh, the fear about COVID-19. So it just just should be understood by the general public that that is not uh, an issue that they should worry about. Is that correct? that's, That's absolutely correct. I mean, yes, I've heard about this, and I think a lot of our veterinary representative organizations have been doing a very, very stalwart job at putting forward the message which is that your dog or your cat is not a threat to you. Mm -hmm. You might be a bit of a threat to your dog or cat, but Mm -hmm. not in, you know, that the the, the situation really is that um, it's a great pity if people feel that they need to abandon their pets because they shouldn't, they don't need to. Absolutely. Well, we might as well move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Yeah, I I do a lot of recruitment, and I quite often ask the same question of the people that I might be intending to recruit. And to me, what I like to hear back as an answer is a leader is somebody who you follow. Not senselessly, 
but because they present a coherent case for what they want you to do or say or make happen, but also because they show by example how that should be done. And how would you say your leadership uh, style was formed? My leadership style is, is very relaxed, but very positive. So I'm very, very keen to, um, to answer people's questions and also to show by example that I'm doing what I believe is the right thing. Um, I'm also very, very happy as a leader to admit that I was wrong or I made a mistake or there's some further information that I wasn't aware of. So I think that sort of openness is very important. However, I like to think that when I set a direction, when I'm leading on something, um, I stick to that direction and I'm very clear about what I expect other people to do in order to go in that direction. Now, of course, leadership doesn't develop out of thin air. Uh, it comes from somewhere. So let's go back to the beginning of your career when you first started your working life. Did you have any particular influences who shaped you in uh, your uh, leadership style? I'd have to be... I hate to be negative when I'm answering questions, but I would have to say that the <clears throat> my early experience of leadership was quite negative and I didn't have any good role models for quite some time. Uh, the leaders that I had in the early stages of my career tended to be very dogmatic, very aggressive, very reluctant to discuss matters or to consider consider other options. And I didn't really become aware of a coherent option for leadership probably until ooh, the late 90s, I suppose. I've had a long career. Now, of course, people tend to forget uh, that one can learn just as much from bad leadership as they can from good. Um, what separates a bad leader from a good one? Yeah, that's, hmm, let me just think about that one for a second. Yeah, um, a bad leader is someone who uses negative techniques like um, threatening people, frightening people, giving people no other options and, and being quite dogmatic and aggressive about it. Whereas a good leader will get just as good results, if not better, but won't use any of those negative techniques and will reward and you know acknowledge rather than reward um, the results that are achieved through their good leadership by sharing it with everybody who's participated. Now, if we could have a bit of a word about um, mental health within the veterinary sector. Um, I have spoken in the past uh, to some veterinarians who have raised this as an issue. Uh, the, uh, for instance, the higher than average rate of suicides among veterinary pr uh, practitioners. What is uh, the solution uh, to uh, the mental strain incurred uh, while practicing uh, veterinary medicine? Well, you have to bear in mind that I don't work in general practice. Of course. So my job is, is very different to veterinarians in general practice. And I think that the mental health problems are, are greater in general practice than they are in government practice. If there was a simple solution, I'd love to tell you it, um, but there isn't. I think one of the really big issues that has begun to heavily affect the mental health of veterinarians in practice in the, late, in the sort of the 
recent past has been the influence of social media. Mm-hmm. So you can do a fantastic job. You can do a really excellent job, work in your practice, achieve lots of wonderful results, and then um, maybe have one result that isn't as good as you would have liked. And obviously, our pets all come to the end of their lives. Not all of our pets can be cured of their diseases. Not all of our owners can, to be honest, afford the treatment that's needed for their animals. And you get a lot of that who will receive an onslaught of negative social media reports just linked to one issue when, in fact, you know, they've been doing a fantastic job for a long time. And yet one sort of destructive person can damage their reputation, damage the practice's reputation, mm. and, and just, just cause a great deal of hurt and a great deal of depression and anxiety as well. The, uh, the statement that I heard uh, from the gentleman who I uh, interviewed also uh, pointed towards uh, the fact that euthanizing animals in some circumstances is the solution to the issue at that stage and through some oblique way that's connected in some veterinarians' minds as that is also a solution for themselves. So what sort of uh, message can we be putting out there uh, to the veterinary community uh, to try and prevent this? Well, we're, we're, as an organization, APHA has quite a lot of contact with veterinarians in practice, and we try our very best to be um, to acknowledge their problems, to be as positive as possible, and also to, to be their, their friends, if you like, in terms of mm. an organization they can approach if they are concerned concerned about issues, they're concerned about government policy, they're concerned about their activities that implement government policy. So we try very, very hard to have an outreach function. <clears throat> so obviously, um, people can contact us directly, or they can contact us through websites, or they can contact us through their MPs. You know, they've, they've got quite a selection um, of ways that they can contact us. And we also try to be caring. Mm-hmm. When it comes to issues where you know maybe there has been a mistake made or there is a particular problem that should have been reported a little bit earlier, um, but we try to be caring people. And within our organisation, um, which is a significant veterinary organisation, we, we have nearly 400 veterinarians employed by ACHA. So you know that's that's, that's a good proportion of the national total. Um, we have. Um, an employee's assistance program in place, which means that any of our staff which is, who are starting to feel pressure or are starting to experience issues with depression or anxiety or any other psychiatric issue, um, we have uh, a 24 7 free service um, on the phone that people can call if they, if they feel they need it. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And Linda, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but you have to come back on the show when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. That was Linda Smith, Veterinary Head of Careers and Education for the APHA. And now, if you haven't heard before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. 
Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, <laughs> I guess, had one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is 
at the top is absolutely vital for a, a for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn song and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, 
with Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had the impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now, but it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, 
Well, you want me to tell you if you want. You want. You got time? I can tell I you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing it at a dinner in, in the Channel Islands, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions, and then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I, again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it, it, uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence, these unbelievable results. There are, you know, 
and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later. Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about. Uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. And there was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was. A big part, I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was, and I've said that many, many times, for the success of the team. We have some great players, it, we have some great players, of course, but without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word, the, word is team. The, word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. 
And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go with the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.